pressing down a special key and place a little melody. Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM LP, Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I'm a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio In Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina teachers and schools at www.bwfund.org. Radio In Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. And finally, Radio In Vivo is underwritten by Gene-Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene-Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Well, just when you thought it was safe to go outside again, all of a sudden it's time once again to worry about air pollution. My guest today on Radio on Vivo is one of the leading experts in the country on air pollution. So we are going to get an up-to-the-minute report on the state of our air, how it got that way, where it's going, and importantly, on what in the world is going on at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Dan Costa is retired now, but through 2018, he had a 40-year professional career studying the health effects of air pollution. In his last dozen years at EPA, he led the overall air quality research effort at the agency, covering everything from health to combustion and monitoring technologies to air quality modeling and climate change. 
Among his positions at EPA, from 2012 through his retirement in 2019, he was the National Program Director of Air, Climate, and Energy Research at EPA, known as ACE. Today, that group is known as A-blank-E, which speaks volumes about where we are on climate change. Dan continues his role as an adjunct professor of environmental sciences and engineering at the Gillings School of Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill. Dan earned his B.S. in biology and chemistry from Providence College, Rhode Island, an M.S. in environmental sciences from Rutgers, and an M.S. in S.C.D., Doctor of Science, that is, uh, degree in physiology and toxicology from the Harvard School of Public Health. He has a list of professional accomplishments and recognitions that are is too long to enumerate, including a career achievement f- award from the Science of Society of to- Toxicology, where he is also a past president. Now that he is a private citizen and no longer a federal government employee, he has used his voice to speak out about many of the current issues related to air pollution and climate change, and we will dig all that and more as we welcome Dr. Dan Costa to Radio In Vivo. Well, thank you, Ernie. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be here. Thanks well, for the invitation. I, I appreciate you coming in. Dan, this is a, a situation where I don't want to bury the lead. So let's dive right into the deep end. <laughs> where, What in the world is going on with the Environmental Protection Agency? Well, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency has always been the premier international environmental research organization. Um, You know, it started in 1970 um, because there were lots of issues uh, that were right before your eyes, uh, whether it was water, air, land, etc. And uh, great investment was made, uh, you know, Ironically enough, Richard Nixon is probably the most environmental president we've ever had. You know, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, uh, NEPA, several others. Uh, but there was a, a bipartisan uh, view that the environment needed to be tended to. Uh, the community, the citizens of the country had stood up and spoken their minds through the revolutionary times of the 60s. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there was the, the commitment on the part of the people who have worked at the uh, EPA has not only impressed, it, impressed me but astounded me over the years. Um, uh, many of them could have had very lucrative industrial or academic careers. Uh, they chose to work at EPA. I mean, you know, there's something to be said for a government position, but it was an institution where everyone was pulling the rope pretty much in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the course of my career, I've worked with six different presidential administrations, uh, nine different um, assistant administrators for the Office of Research and Development that I was in for my entire career at EPA from 85 to the present. Uh, I joined the agency right after the Gorsuch debacle in the Reagan administration. Um, So things were building up. And um, regardless of uh, political uh, affiliation, I've always found everybody um, that I've worked with 
to be committed to the issue of public protection of public health and the environment. Uh, different perspectives of how to do that. You know, uh, just you know, try to work on anything. People are going to have different opinions, even though they want to get to the same end. Sure, and so, that's healthy. And it's healthy. I think you know, uh, um, conflict, managed conflict, is always good. <clears throat> it brings out the best. Um, this administration came in from the get-go with absolute disdain for public health and the environment. And the reason I feel so strongly about this, you know, when um, uh, the administrator, after his um, 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 certification, his, uh, you know, uh, through Congress, uh, came to the EPA um, and um, he met with the senior folks in this big celebratory building, uh, auditorium, to give a 15-minute um, um, introduction of himself. And he stood up there in front of the crowd. Uh, we, I could watch it from my desk because we have this internal video capability. Mm -hmm. And he spoke for 15 minutes, took no questions. It made me a little bit queasy that people gave him a standing ovation. Um, but he, he was, you know, a former attorney general from Oklahoma um, who came in, and in the 15 minutes, he never once mentioned the phrase protection of public health and the environment. Wow. He talked mm -hmm. about the need to control regulation, the need to diminish regulation to ensure um, um, growth in the, uh, you know, in the private sector, um, to uh, the need for to protect small business, <clears throat> and never once said anything about protection of public health and the environment. And I knew right then we were going to be in for some troubled times. Yeah. Well, in, in <clears throat> one of the many terrific documents that you sent to me uh, to help me prepare for our conversation, uh, it was a testimony to a House panel this past April, mm -hmm. uh, and you said, post-inauguration, one could sense a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. You were still at EPA at that point. Mm -hmm. so can you elaborate a little further on the paradigm shift? Well, the paradigm shift is, you know, I think um, the administrator, uh, this presentation, uh, January 20th at noontime, right after the inauguration, there is always preparation for the new, the new folks in town coming in, mm -hmm. change of administration. Yeah. There's preparation laid out, uh, parking spaces made available. Uh, there are, um, you know, bagels and whatnot that are put out for folks to come in. And here we are with the transition, and nobody shows up. Indeed, this is in D.C. now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, briefing papers are prepared, presentations are prepared to talk to these folks. Nobody shows up. Now, whether that was part of what we've read about the administration not expecting to be elected or what the preparation was. But after a few days, they did show up. Um, they weren't really interested in any of the written materials. This is 
the so-called transition team to EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to call themselves the landing team, which to me struck Normandy invasion. <laughs> right. <laughs> and a number of people were rather upset with that phraseology, and it, they backed off. Uh, but they really didn't want to hear um, about what we had done, what we were doing. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, that kind of information and the, and the rumors, mostly factual, that spread from that is like, is, is like a, you know, you go from a calm pond and you throw a stone in the middle and the ripples, they reach every, every nook and cranny of the agency. And what what was the immediate impact of that? Uh, did did people start leaving in droves and things like that? No, I think you know people just started being careful. Yeah. Um, and you know, for better or for worse, one of the things that happens with people who are in uh, government positions, particularly government administrative positions and management positions, is that they tend to be cautious. Um, and EPA historically has had that. And having gone through the Gorsuch era, uh, I think there was a certain uh, tradition that was embedded uh, so that people, um, you know, I remember having a, uh, when we were going through ethics training, and the book that they gave us was not, um, here are the ethics rules, you know, blah, 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 that kind of thing. It was how to stay out of trouble, (laughs) (laughs) which always annoyed me because, you know, that's, I don't, I don't like to live a life to stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll, Mm -hmm. if if I get in trouble once in a while, I certainly don't want to touch the electric fence if I don't have to, but, um, you need to pressure the system you need to have this internal conflict and raise questions and you get the best somebody has to make a decision and then you move forward um so um what happened is that people there was a certain amount at least on the climate end of things people writing things there's a certain amount of self-censorship sure say climate change Mm -hmm. when we were putting in our uh, our budget, you know, we, we do go through a two-year budget cycle where, you know, we plan a budget two years from now, and then we have this year's budget, and next year's budget still in congressional action. Um, when I would put things in under air, climate, and energy, I would hear back from our budget folks, you know, or do you saying, we've got to take the word climate out of there, call it air and energy, because somebody in Congress on on the Republican side uh, didn't want climate in there. Yeah. <clears throat> Yet, interestingly enough, all of the papers that came out of the White House where they may have said air and energy or air hyphen energy, they didn't even use the word processor search and replace. There were many places where it was still air, climate, and energy. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, there was such sort of um, chaos and confusion uh, that my feeling was is that until I'm told t- to my face that we're not going to be air, climate, and energy, we will be. Yeah. Yet many people were already sort of self-censoring themselves and using metaphorical terms for climate uh, if they were going to be publishing things. Um, and, um, and as things were beginning to change, I knew that they were being associated with the air program uh, and air policy – 
that we, I, I needed to look at things a little bit differently. I mean, I'm not so dumb as to, like, you know, stick my head into the mouth of a lion. Um, that, and I had been thinking about this for some time, just doing science to support sort of a regulatory policy, regulatory thinking, was not really going to solve the problems that we've had. You know, it's just like cleaning a smokestack. The first 95% is relatively easy. The last 5% gets tougher and tougher, exponentially tougher. And it seemed to me that we had cleaned the air pretty well, not, not you know, just in terms of the 40-year the lifespan of the research program and, and academic research, of course, feeding into this. And, sure. Um, in the policy office and the political pushers and, and industrial efforts that were made to clean these things, that what we needed to deal with now is to take a little bit different approach rather than just being regulatory, to think of things in the context of um, problems, bigger national issues. Uh, climate, obviously, is one that's big, but that one's almost too big to really wrap your arms around in some ways. Uh, but we had other issues, you know, and the one that was really getting sort of uh, prominent was the wildfire situation. Mm -hmm. And we see it even today still. I mean, you know, the story in California, what's going on. Right. So I felt that, well, maybe we should just sort of repackage our program in some ways into the context of dealing with wildfire impacts on air pollution. And it turns out that roughly 35% of the annual average of particulate matter in the air comes from fires, wildfires, controlled burns, uh, wood stoves, etc. So we're really, uh, from a regulatory perspective, looking at 65%, right, from anthropogenic, specific anthropogenic sources. Mm -hmm. Automobiles, things, things of yeah, that Yeah, automobiles, nature. power plants, industry, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that virtually all the problems that we have from a regulatory perspective, we could address in the context of wildfire. And as an air issue, wildfire is not just an air issue. It has obviously climate implications. It has a reciprocal relationship with climate. It makes climate worse. Climate makes it worse. Mm -hmm. It affects water. Um, it affects land, the eco, uh, uh, you know, evolution in, in terms of, you know, regrowth. It has huge economic implications, has huge social implications. And even from a chemical perspective, you know, interestingly enough, you know, we hear a lot about CFAS right now. Uh, in water supply, North Carolina has an issue. Actually, it's a national issue. Sure. Well, when you see those C-130s flying over a fire, dropping all of this red cloud fire suppressant, guess what that is? CFAS. Wow. Mm -hmm. In fact, the highest concentrations of CFAS are usually found in water supplies nearby fire areas. So it was a problem that brought in every aspect of environmental science, water, air, chemicals, uh, prevention, preparedness, et cetera, <clears throat> that we really had something that, how could you say that this is not worthwhile work to do? And I thought if I wrap my program in that and had other folks working with us, um, that we could sell the idea. I mean, I don't expect them to, like, you know, bring dumb, dumb trucks of money to me, <laughs> but at least they won't cut my heart out.
So how how'd that go? Um, it was interesting because um, there was an internal resistance at first to the wildfire issue. Um, the people in the air office, the policy office, um, they regulate based on ozone, PM, et cetera, et cetera. And while PM is an issue with fires and stuff, the biggest concern with wildfires is that wildfires are uh, oftentimes called exceptional events. So if you're in an area, like in Kansas, for example, where you have an ozone problem, if there's an ongoing local wildfire that may be contributing all of the precursors for the production of ozone in the air, you can apply for and achieve an exceptional event, which would take you out of the take that data out of the regulatory process, which is used in the enforcement. You know, if you have X number of violations over the course of three years, you can get dinged from the standpoint of transportation funds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the concern was is that this was playing into the hands of some places, oddly enough, where they would actually do controlled burns mm -hmm. in times of high ozone to get them off the regulatory radar. Hmm. Wow. So they were concerned about the implications. Is this going to be played against the policy, et cetera, et cetera? But slowly but surely, um, the policy folks came around and said, you know, yeah, this is a big issue. We have a lot of people exposed to PM. You know, even if you're off the regulatory radar, the pollutants are still there. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, PM, PM being particulate, particulate matter. matter, yes. Yeah, which is the a, a major yes. component of, right. of air pollution. Especially the smaller components, you know, less than 2.5 microns, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a fraction of a of a hair that can deposit deep in your lungs. Yeah. Um, and it, so, and it's, it's, um, they, they, they were letting us move forward with this. We put together a, a, a plan and people were sort of doing work in this area, trying to deal with some of the same questions that we have to deal with on a regulatory side, but within this context. And Congress, in spite of, well, the administration still was, you know, attacking our program yeah. from a budgetary standpoint. But Congress uh, maintained our funding, at least for the first couple of years. Um, and um, we didn't get any pushback from our senior uh, uh, ORD, Office of Research and Development Management. They said, you know, as long as you keep going. Mm -hmm. But I've heard there's been rumblings in the last... Um, several months that one of the concerns about wildfires people think of it in terms of smoke in particulate matter and particulate matter right now is very much a hot policy item with issues having to do with the clean air science advisory committee that's been re reformatted by this administration um and by the uh the elimination of one of the review boards uh so it's uh there's been a rumor that you know we ought to push back a little bit on some of this fire stuff because it means particles in the air. So, you know, it's going on. And this is, you know, it's, it's, I'm not surprised. Uh, but um, I'm hoping that things can continue enough so that uh, the working can continue because, you know, the issue of wildfire is not something, we're not going to stop them. The Smokey the Bear approach turned out to be, had, you know, counteractive 
implications. The question is, is how do we prepare? How do we minimize impacts? 60% of all domestic dwellings that have been built in the year 2000 have been built in this this zone that's called the the, the Wui, the wildland, the the urban uh, uh, interface with wildland. Um, so people like living in more rural communities, and they have trees around them, and 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 they're invading. Um, uh, Areas that are very prone to fires, especially mm-hmm. in the West. Sure, yeah, we've certainly seen a lot of evidence of that. Uh, you know, last year and again, again this year, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how much of that is tied in with uh, climate change? Well, surely, um, you know, see, warm seasons are longer, dry seasons are longer. Um, you know, the issue of. Uh, um, Climate change is one of disruption of normal cycles. Areas that were somewhat wet are much wetter. Some areas that were dry are much drier. Um, And um, interestingly enough, um, what happens is when there's the fire, uh, there are many particles, obviously, that get into the air, um, as well as many constituents that are associated with global uh, change. Um, some of these particles, um, you know, it's kind of funny. And the, the, one of the reasons we need to understand this, there, there's one modeling sequence, for example, that shows that the time of year when controlled burns are best conducted also happens to be the time of year when the jet stream comes furthest south and heads north, depositing the particles on the ice caps. So while we're trying mm-hmm, to control yeah. the, the the southeast has a pretty good fire control program with prescribed burns, the west mm-hmm. is pretty much free burn. Yeah. And they say, well, you should be controlling. But the question is, is when do we do it? How do we do it? How do we minimize these things? And and only science is going to help us deal with this. And we we shouldn't uh, continue the discussion without uh, acknowledging the fact that you, in fact, were one of the real pioneers of the recognition of the issue of particulate matter in our air. Right. I mean, yeah. I was involved <laughs> in, in that work. You know, you, you, in, in you oversaw a lot of the science yeah. that mm-hmm. was involved with that. And that was uh, probably one of the biggest trends in environmental science in the last 20 years. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting that um, in, in when I was doing much more laboratory work, uh, and when I first came to EPA, the big concern was ozone, uh, and it still remains a concern. It has implications for uh, uh, particularly young folks with, and with asthma. Asthma uh, uh, has some impacts on your susceptibility to in lung infections, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a secondary air pollutant, so it's hard to control. It, you know, uh, older people who have respiratory problems can have issues, and um, so I spent probably close to six to ten years, spending a lot of time on ozone once I came to the agency. But um, there was some early epidemiology that was coming out of uh, Harvard University, the the classic Harvard Six City study, which was originally looking at acid aerosol Mm -hmm. um, that showed that particles 
even at concentrations that were below the regulated levels, seemed to have an impact. And what's interesting is that um, when I came to the agency, one of our funding streams was called gases and particles. Uh, <laughs> a rather simple <laughs> term, but it was most of our work in that area was with acid aerosols. See, everybody remembers acid rain, et cetera, sure. which turns out to be a huge success story on the environmental end of things. I was going to ask you, whatever happened to acid rain? <laughs> um, you know, lakes were getting acidified, uh, trees in the Smoky Mountains were being burned, uh, uh, it's chemical burn with the acid, and, you know, breathing ac- uh, sulfuric acid, which is primarily what that was, how could that be good for you? Yeah. So a lot of work was spent looking at human studies, animal studies, epidemiologic studies, looking at the impacts of acidified particles in the air from sulfur, burning sulfurized coal. Well, interestingly enough, the health aspect of that, while some asthmatics are a little bit more sensitive to sulfuric acid in the air, um, and some people with significant uh, airway disease there wasn't that much of a health impact. We have lots of ammonia in our respiratory tract to neutralize it. So it wasn't that big a deal on the environmental side of things. There were huge impacts in terms of the acidification of lakes, et cetera. So the emphasis was placed on that. And once they came up with cap and trade, which is another story, um, to control sulfur, amazingly the amount of sulfur in the air went down, you know, some of the acidification problem. And there wasn't that much health effect associated with acid particles. They said, aha, the problem solved. So our funding in that area, of course, was cut, mm-hmm. and <laughs> emphasis was on ozone. Yeah. Then when this new epidemiology came out about 10 years later, um, showing that these health effects from particles, not just acid particles, but just combustion-related particles, there was a lot of concern Uh, because there are several studies that showed this impact on health, uh, not just general health, but mortality. You know, a couple hundred thousand people a year uh, succumbing to this. Um, During the Clinton administration, which was, and they had a Republican Congress, uh, the Republicans oftentimes say, well, we don't really know enough. The uncertainty story, which we hear a lot about now. Except back then what they said was, you know what? We're just going to dump a lot of money on this problem and study it and come back to us in 10 years and tell us what the solution is. So in 1998, the air budget in my program, and I wasn't the head of it at the time, uh, doubled. Wow, okay. And about two-thirds to three-quarters of that money that was in that supplement went towards establishing centers of excellence, so-called particulate matter centers at five different academic institutions um, to study the issue. And lo and behold, uh, particles were and their impacts was not just a statistical fluke, which was what the argument was being made by industry at the time. This is just, you know, statistics, you can get whatever you want. Um, it turns out that the epidemiology, which was pretty strong, didn't have a a context, a biologic plausibility. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. g- yeah. t- uh, give me something why I should believe this. Yeah. Um, 
So the animal toxicology folks had the gauntlet thrown in front of them. Show me how this could work. Well, a number of studies ended up showing that there are five or six, if not more, ways that particles can impact health. And the impacts were real, although they were still pretty subtle. They were showing you know, increases in lung inflammation, some asthma things, uh, um, maybe, maybe a little risk of cancer. We couldn't really show much about that. And then some studies that were done, um, you know, and, and I was a part of some of that work with uh, Dr. Penn Watkinson, uh, the late Dr. Penn Watkinson, a couple studies out of Harvard that said maybe it's not the impact on the whole population. Maybe certain individuals seem to be at higher risk. So we worked with a few animal models that had pre-existing cardiopulmonary ailments. We could treat them with a chemical so they had really dramatic impacts on their lungs and hearts. So they were sort of at risk. And when we exposed them to particles, uh, they actually died. Wow, okay. Uh, and then concentrations above ambient, but not ridiculous by any means. Sure. And suddenly we said, well, geez, may- maybe this isn't just a lung thing. You know, when you think of your breathing things, that the impacts are it's on the lung, right? But lo and behold, the impacts were not the lung. It was the heart. And it kind of kicked off. The Epi folks went back and looked at all of their data from a cardiac perspective. And lo and behold, today, while the, the respiratory tract is still of concern with particles, it's primarily focused on the heart. And you say, well, how can it affect the heart? Is the, are the particles getting into the blood? Well, there's some suggestion of that perhaps, but it seems to work through, through the autonomic nervous system. By triggering receptors in the airways, you trigger central controls. If the heart's already being stressed, it doesn't take much to push it off the end of the table. And that's what seems to be the primary driving mechanism. But now there's data that shows that people exposed, even to very low levels of, of particles, um, progressively get worsening of atherosclerosis, you know, it's not just McDonald's hamburgers. I mean, it adds to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can separate that from tobacco. So it's it's significant and it's real. Uh, so uh, it, it is pretty remarkable on how much the particle impact story has evolved over time. Yeah, absolutely. It's and still it, there. A lot of that uh, inhalation toxicology work was done right here in Chapel Hill, was it not? Yes, yes. And the human studies were done here in Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. There were some animal studies there, lots of animal studies in, in Research Triangle Park as well. And I know that uh, you, you have been known to describe yourself as an empirical cardiopulmonary physiologist. <laughs> Right. Which speaks to exactly what you were you were just talking about. You right. you were in your wheelhouse right there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, Dan, getting back a little bit to to the situation in the bigger picture with the EPA and everything, um, you seem you you've stated that this administration seems to have neither an environmental public health mission nor any strategy that cares to look ahead at future 
environmental challenges that face the nation. When I read that sentence in the material you sent me, I, I was like, wow, <laughs> this is scary. Uh, you know, our, our, our grandchildren, are they, are they doomed or is there hope? You know, I, I've always been a glass-half-full kind of person. I certainly think there's hope. You know, there have been big changes in time. Um, you know, the days of really bad air pollution, are, I'd like to think are behind us, but there are parts of the world that still have severe air pollution, uh, the developing uh, world, as it were. Uh, the megacities... Uh, uh, Beijing, Delhi, etc., have huge levels. Yeah. Uh, there are many communities, um, not just communities, but uh, uh, parts of the the developing world where uh, the burning of biologic materials, not just wood, but dung, etc., mm-hmm. cook stoves where, where people are exposed, like peat, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are many, many issues. I mean, the World Health Organization estimates that maybe 7 million people a year die from particulate matter. Um, interestingly enough, in the, with the cook stove story, uh, uh, many of those people are women because they, they were cooking and they carry their babies on their backs, so they have children being exposed. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, in the so-called developed world, you know, U.S., uh, Canada, um, Europe, parts of South America, uh, Asia, parts of parts of Asia, etc. Um, there are some great strides that have been made in, in cleaning the air. Um, the concern now is that with our approach to um, not looking forward to alternative means of energy. I mean, that's that's why the, the Air Climate and Energy Program was created. Uh, originally, we had an air quality program. We had a climate program. We never had an energy program. Um, people were doing some modeling on the energy side of things. Um, but it was decided um, that air and climate are inextricably connected. One affects the other. You change climate, you change the way chemistry creates ozone, creates particles, and vice versa. And what connects those two things? It's the kind of energy that we use, which has been obviously key to our development and evolution. Um, but, you know, we went from horses to automobiles, which was very <laughs> disruptive at the time. Sure. Um, and uh, so we're in the transition point and there's a struggle because there are economics, there are winners and losers. Uh, and it, it would be nice to have some kind of national, if not international, strategy of how we should move to this greener way of, of generating energy. And we can do a lot more, but right now it's pockets, it's just, you know, it's not really coordinated. And the current administration and the denialists that come in, uh, yeah. um, th- they, they they just don't want to give any support to that. Uh, and, and what's happening is, you know, much like in the early days of air pollution where the federal government wasn't really involved, it was more or less at the city level. You know, Pittsburgh had its own rules. As bad as it was, 
they were trying to institute something to minimize exposures. So cities now are kind of adopting approaches in states. Um, and uh, So they're take, kind of taking the ball from EPA. They're taking the point. ball from EPA mm-hmm. and from the federal government. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, hopefully, um, uh, you know, it's, it's – you know, you and I are both sort of children of the 60s and 70s when people stood up for civil rights, for equal rights as such as they were in terms of gender, uh, the war issues, environmental issues. We're sort of at a point now, and I, I kind of get this feeling, uh, that people are, are beginning to say, well, wait a minute, you know, don't lie to me about this. I can see it in front of my eyes. I exactly. see these changes, mm-hmm. and they're affecting me. Yeah. And they're going to affect my kids and my family. Um, and that kind of pressure is what changes things. You know, uh, back to the acid rain story, not to kind of jump forward and back in time. Sure. You know, it, it was the communities. I mean, people in the early 70s, you know, we remember Dinah Shore, uh, you know, see the USA in your Chevrolet. People would t- summer vacations dad gets two two weeks off from work or whatever, and you would drive to a national park. Well, folks drove to the Grand Canyon, and they got there, and they couldn't see across because there was this acid haze that affected visibility. And they said, wait a minute, I'm I'm taking my vacation time and my family, and I'm coming. And, And so they contacted their congresspeople, congressmen primarily at the time, and said, what is going on? Why can't I see across the Grand Canyon? And it was that kind of pressure <clears throat> that pushed them to look at the early days of acid rain and acid haze. Now you can go to the Grand Canyon, you see a cross. And people will get there and say, air pollution, what's the problem with air pollution? We don't have air pollution. Right. There's no smog in L.A. anymore. Right. Yeah, you can see the mountains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you, you see a return of that kind of... I think it's activism. It, uh, that activism is slowly growing. I think what, what, little Greta is pointing the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what concerns me a little bit is that, and, and I don't know if it's just being retired and becoming an old fogey, but things are moving so fast. People are so busy with so many things, getting their kids to soccer practice, getting dinner. You know, how many times did you eat out as a kid? Uh, or did you have food brought in? Not very often, but today a lot of people do that because they're so busy. Yeah. So the, the, it's taking a while for people to stop and sort of appreciate sort of what's around them and, and what's happening. But it's it is happening. It does seem to be happening if you look at the the polling information. Yes. Uh, do you think now that that the public now really gets it and understands? Say the difference between climate and weather, for example. I think so. I think so. You know, I think interesting also is the fact that you know I was raised in a world where people talked about the hard sciences and the soft sciences. Hard sciences, chemistry, physics, biology. Soft sciences, psychology, social sciences, etc. Yeah, they're okay, but it's touchy feely stuff. Yeah. Well, more and more we're realizing that. As a species, we are in we are social species. We everything we do is behavioral, is interactive, and the hard sciences alone will not 
solve this problem, that we need those social sciences to be brought in. And slowly but surely, I think that's what's ultimately going to change. I mean, as I explained with the acid in the Grand Canyon, it was there. It just wasn't recognized. Um, And I think now that people can buy not particularly good necessarily, but some are better than others, some of these personal sensors for measuring pollutants, you can buy them on Amazon. And communities and groups, bicycle bicycle groups, for example, so having safer bike rides in terms of breathing air pollutants, people are measuring things, and they're coming to the EPA or their local uh, environmental uh, office for the state and saying, wait a minute, these measurements are above what I see in the paper. They may not be regulatory in any sense of the word. So people are – so it's that kind of thing. People want to know, people want to take control of their own environments and protect their families. So uh, in general, where do you see the, the technology at this point uh, in terms of your research, uh, and where do you see it going in the coming years? I think the technology is, is moving towards is, – there is a sensor revolution mm-hmm. with te- you know miniaturization of uh, – Everything in cell phones, um, we, uh, uh, we're seeing better and more um, diverse kinds of measuring devices. Uh, almost everybody has a cell phone these days, and you can connect them to your cell phones. And just like you can get um, the weather underground if you have that app, and see mm-hmm. people around have their own little weather stations. People are beginning to do that with air pollution monitoring. In fact, Weather Underground has partnered with a number of those groups so that people are are, are getting a better sense of that. And, peop- and it's affecting real estate values in some places. Um, so it's the, – the, my, my only concern is that is that is this is it happening fast enough? You know the 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 climate situation has um, been recognized for some time now, uh, but it seems to be worsening faster than we had anticipated. It, it certainly does. Yeah. And um, you know they keep talking about this twelve-year window to do something. I'm not really sure how robust that that is, but I'm sure it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is: is uh, uh, our Part of that 12-year adjustment and preparation is going to be political and having the political will among, regardless of what party it is, to say, listen, these are some things that we just have to do to prepare. Um, When I was at EPA, uh, in part because of its politicization, when they talked about climate change, they had they called it. We need an adaptation program. And to me, adaptation is is not in the American spirit. It's a passive. Everything we've accomplished, uh, whether it's environmental or otherwise, has always been through sort of social activism. So I always, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where I read this originally, but someone talked about preparedness which includes adaptation. You have to adapt. But preparing is what Americans do. We did that for Homeland Security. 
In the early days, it was duct tape, but it's become much more sophisticated. Right. Um, and if we have a preparedness program, it's something we can sell to the public. Again, that social context. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, people want to be. We're going. You know, it's it's like the fellow in, at nine eleven. You know, said on the plane uh, in in Pennsylvania when he said, "Let's take it." Everybody did it. Yeah. The people who sat back just crashed in. So it's we, we need to use language. We need to use social sciences. We need to not have scientists be geeks sort of doing their work, throwing the, their papers. Someone will read it. We need to work. We need to communicate that science. Look how effective NASA, NASA has been over the years. I remember watching all of the space rockets launching in the 60s when I was in grammar school. They brought on the television for us to watch these things. Everybody knew about all those things. And we've kind of lost that. Um, so those are the things that, that I, I, I'm looking forward to. And, and right now it's kind of a plasma, cosmic sort of thing that's like is slowly crystallizing. It it does seem to be coalescing, absolutely. Well, well, Dan, now that you are, in fact, on the outside mm-hmm. looking in, what have you been able to do to take advantage of your current status and uh, and fight the power, as it were? Um, now, that was one of the reasons, among many, that I ultimately decided that it was time for me to retire. Age, family issues, and that sort of thing. Sure. But I thought that I could have more of a voice. Um, I've been working with an organization called the Environmental Protection Network, which is a network of EPA retirees, primarily, almost all uh, Bill Riley, Ruckelshaus, uh, uh, and all of the folks that were contemporary to me who've retired or older than that. Mm-hmm. And it's a group that's very, very knowledgeable. Uh, and we we have weekly uh, calls and a monthly big, large call. We, we respond to the press. We respond to the regulatory things that go out. A number of us speak publicly. I've given lectures at a number of universities. So kind of a shadow EPA, huh? Kind of a shadow <laughs> EPA in some ways. Um, and, um, you know, I think that group has been really effective in trying to keep the, f- the flame, as it were, burning. Uh, and uh, it's important to keep the truth and science out there as well in the policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, um, you know, I talk to members of the press at least once or twice a week. You know, they'll call me about different things. Uh, um, you know, I know others speak even more so. And, and you know, when, when Bill Ruckelshaus uh, and Bill Riley uh, speak, people listen. Uh, we write op-eds. A number of us have written op-eds that have been published. Uh, I've had a congressional testimony. Um, so it's... It's 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 sort of a I don't know if I'd call it a grassroots so much, but it's it's an effort to keep uh, some sanity on this, and it it also helps bolster the morale within the agency, which right now is not particularly high. In fact, it's very low. Sure. Uh, this sort of a bunker mentality, as I was saying before, you keep your head below the foxhole and it won't be shot off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, do you, do you think we? Can we survive another four years of this? Another four years on life support 
uh, my fear is that there may be some organ failure here and there, yeah. and it will be difficult to come back. Uh, you know, I think the agency actually rebounded very well after Ann Gorsuch in the early Reagan years. Uh, there was good leadership. Ruckles House came back as the agency lead. Uh, there was a you know push on science, and uh, and you know the. the the core element of the science that's at, at least within the Office of Research and Development, it's, it's so important for that to be uh, fed by new postdocs and students that come up through the universities and either work part-time at EPA or do part of their training there. And as people retire out, these people move into these positions. They bring new ideas. They always bring enthusiasm. Uh, um, but what's happened, although things seem to be, the Office of Research and Development for a while wasn't hiring anybody to come in. You had a bunch of people sort of retiring out, the middle folks staying there working hard, and there were no new people coming. And they were afraid to come, like, what's what's my future? Sure. Um, so, but now that seems to be changing a, a little bit, uh, that ORD, and this isn't a totally because of the administration, but the lack of hiring was part of this bunker mentality. We better not do this, you know, because we don't want to get in trouble. So there's a slow movement in that direction. And my fear is is that if we went through another four years, it would crash again. Um, and uh, once people stop coming, uh, it'll be really hard to kind of get that engine moving. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'll be... Certainly uh, very interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, uh, you know, certainly encourage you and your your contemporaries and peers uh, to keep on keeping on. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I, I have to admit uh, the folks that I've been working with over the course of my career in EPA and academics, et cetera, have been really, really strong in their efforts and support. Uh, just last week, there was a meeting, just to step back for a moment, when uh, um, um, when the Clean Air Science Advisory Committee was reconstituted. They fired everybody who was on there. They hired folks uh, uh, who had, who in the past had been rejected because of conflicts of interest were now on the board. Yeah. And there were only seven of them. Uh, and they had one time with the particulate matter story, because the 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 the, the issues associated are so broad from chemistry, physics, biology, health, medicine, et cetera, they had twenty consultants on this clean air science subcommittee. They were all fired. No one who had any prior EPA or existing EPA funding could be brought back on. Um so this committee of seven met, and I was part of the the hearing at the time. A number of us spoke in front of this committee, mm-hmm. and the committee admitted that it didn't have the expertise to do the evaluation of the database that EPA had compiled on particular matter. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, with that admission, you know, uh, Andrew Wheeler, the president present administrator, put together this. Uh, remember the TV show Want to Be a Millionaire where there was a lifeline you could call? (laughs) They kind of set something up like that with a few 
experts okay, that good. who could be called, but only through the chairman of the committee, who was very much an anti-environmental person. Um, and um, so this committee of 20 had they testified, et cetera, and they decided to self-organize. And they actually met last week uh, under the auspices of the Union of Concerned Scientists in D.C. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to do their review of the integrated science uh, assessment for particulate matter, just as they would have had they been official. And they're putting together a, a letter, a letter that is substantive from the standpoint of the credentials of the people who are expert to be sent to the administrator to say, this is our assessment of where we think the standard should be. Your committee is already admitted. It's not qualified. So how can you ignore our letter. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. Well, it's good to know there's there's some hope uh, at work there. Well, uh, Dan, thank you for being my guest today on Radio in Vivo, and thank you for the important work you've done to protect public health over the course of your illustrious career. Well, thank you very much, Ernie. It's been, a, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. And we've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio in Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. We will catch you next time.